Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Matthias Veras. Based in Ghent or nearby, Matthias is the founder of Ardling, a software modeling and design consultancy with a penchant for complex environments. His focus is on design strategy and messaging-centric domain modeling. He's also a popular conference speaker and particularly well-known for discussing domain-driven design and as the founder of the DDD Europe Conference. You can follow him on Twitter at Matthias Veras, and that's V-E-R-R-A-E-S for anyone listening, and check out his website at veras.net. Along with his colleague, Rebecca Virosbrock, Matthias is co-author of the LeanPub book, Design and Reality, Essays on Software Design. In the book, Matthias and Rebecca have included four essays exploring the relationship between design and reality, models and metaphors, and various aspects of domain-driven design. In this interview, we're going to talk about Matthias's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a writer. So thank you very much, Matthias, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Um, I always like to uh, start these interviews by asking people for what I jokingly call their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, your background and how you found your way into the career you have. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in uh, in Kortrijk, near Ghent, in Belgium. Uh, the way I explain it uh, to people who don't know where that is at all, it's uh, if you make a triangle between uh, Amsterdam, London and Paris, I'm smack in the middle. Um, and uh, yeah, I had, uh, I guess I just had a normal uh, childhood and, uh, uh, but I, um, I didn't like school very much. And I, uh, I ended up going to the music conservatory in Ghent to study. Um, it was uh, specifically, it was a new, uh, a, a new thing they had just started, which was called a uh, pop music production. So we were learning um, like how to do uh, studio recordings and sort of the technical side of that, uh, but also composition and songwriting and, and arranging uh, music. Uh, we had to learn a different instrument every year. So it was a very sort of mix of many things um, with the goal of, you know, teaching people how to, or, or helping them get in sort of the, the space of, of producing pop music albums. I ended up doing a whole bunch of different stuff uh, after that. Like um, I conducted a, a pop choir uh, and I started writing music for um, for short films and documentaries and, and uh, commercials. Uh, I did uh, studio recordings for, um, for orchestras, for film music, that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I was... Uh, well, as a child, I was I I, I was like one of the the first kids with a computer. Uh, we had like a, a Tandy uh, TRS eighty, uh, which had Microsoft Basic and nothing else. So if you wanted to play games, you had to make them yourself. Um, so that's sort of my first entry into into computers and and, and coding. And then uh, even though while I was doing doing music gigs. Um, but uh, well, it's not really. A, it was right when MP3s were becoming really popular, and the whole music industry was crashing. And uh, so I was like half looking for a way out, I guess, and uh, and also just like playing around with computers again and and building websites for various projects I was involved in, like art projects and stuff. And uh, and I got into open source, and I started like publishing my own. Uh, you know, little plugins for for uh, CMS, and then uh, yeah, that sort of turned into to a job, and uh, uh, I started yeah, um, I started a company with somebody in the CMS space. Uh, left at some point, and and uh, did some various things, and eventually uh, uh, I started writing about it. I started speaking at conferences, and uh, and then people started asking me if I could 
go help them, especially with domain-driven design, which was sort of my uh, my focus there. Um, and yeah, people started asking if I could go and help them. And uh, so at some point, I uh, I caved and uh, I gave it a try. I was like finished with a, a government project I had been working on for for eighteen months, and it was well, it was not finished. It's never finished, but sort of the part that I was there to 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 help do was uh, was finished. And uh, and yeah, I started freelancing, um, and that's sort of how it uh, how it started. Um, yeah, helping organizations with uh, domain modeling and and software architecture and and design. Um, started teaching as well, um, and uh, actually, it's sort of group just, if I could if I could stop you there. I mean, sure. so thank you very much for sharing that story. Um, uh, it's it's interesting. You sort of you sort of you said you started teaching. Uh, just at the end there, but you started by saying you didn't like school. Um, and yes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you what it, what it was you didn't like about school. Um, well, I, I I went to a, a Catholic school. It was very Catholic, very strict, and uh, and it was like never never considered that I because my parents weren't very religious, or but it was like the closest school. It was like the obvious place to go to. Um, and, uh, so that, that didn't really help. And then I, uh, yeah, I, I switched to another school and it was even worse. It was in boys only school. Those still existed. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I don't know, it was just not working for me. I feel like if I had been in a, maybe a, like a Montessori school or something like that, it would have been much better. But I was like so tired of everything school that like music was my uh, escape route, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's that's, how uh, that's that's it. That's so that's so interesting. I um uh, there were aspects of school that I I I really didn't like, um, including I'm I'm sort of a, a late to bed, late to get up person. I have been since I was like nine years old, and so it was like every day it was like, wow, this is the worst day of my life. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> that's how that's how they all began. Um, and um, you know, it was it wasn't it wasn't a bad or harsh place, but you know, I I went to like a rural Mennonite boarding school in Saskatchewan in Canada, and so I'm accustomed to sort of unusual learning environments. <laughs> I, I know the toll they. Yeah, I, my, my experience wasn't like a Roald Dahl uh, kind of uh, <laughs> terrible uh, thing, but but it just uh, it just didn't fit there, I think. Uh, and then when I got to to the to the music school, that was like suddenly a, it was a revelation. There were like people like me, right? I could uh, you know people who were passionate about stuff and who and and even the teachers, right? They, we were learning more by you know they they took us to to concerts or to recording studios where they, you know, were, were doing some band or something, uh, that sort of thing. And we, we learned more sort of, uh, yeah, playing around being, being in this music environment for, uh, for five years nonstop. That was, uh, yeah, and, and it sounds like, and it sounds like you got into it. I mean, you know, I mean, one could pick kind of any decade in the in the twentieth century, and it would be interesting for music technology, right? Like, you know, um, uh, but but you were there, so you said, you know, when the sort of MP3 started coming out, and it sounds like you know Napster and 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 stuff like that. What what was this sort of technology like that you were being trained with um, to do sort of pop music production at, at that at that time? When I when I started, uh, Pro Tools was this thing that people sort of mentioned that you know if you get a chance you should have a look at it so pro tools and and especially autotune was very new back then and people were actually buying pro tools which is like a, a music recording digital music recording environment 
Uh, they were buying Pro Tools just to be able to use the AutoTune plugin for that. Um, and that was very, very new. Like most studios were were analog or, or yeah, actually pretty much all of them were, were analog when I started. By the time, it was a five-year, um, the, 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 the education was a five-year thing. By the time it ended, Pro Tools was ubiquitous and everybody was using it and you were like the exception if you still did stuff on tape so uh, and it's not just that right but everything's it like um when i started nobody had a home computer where you where you were actually doing like oh very few people but nobody in my class i was the only one who had sort of done a bit of home recording uh on on an old i don't know i don't remember what computer it was actually uh, but by the end, like they weren't accepting people in that in that school anymore for for the pop music production if they didn't already have had that at home or had played with uh, with this sort of technology at home. So that's sort of the shift that uh, that happened right there. Um, so that that was fascinating. But at the same time, it was yeah, everywhere people were music companies were just firing everybody. There was just no. No money anymore. There was no the the music industry collapsed. Um, so it was a very yeah, I guess uh, like a, a turning point for many things. It's it's so interesting to talking about this historical moment. I mean, just just for anyone listening who might not be old enough to remember or who you know didn't didn't it wasn't paying attention to this kind of thing at the time. There were like a couple of collapses that actually happened right around the same time. There was the kind of that were I, I guess I never thought about this in these terms, but they were kind of ironic, right? Because there was this sort of boom in in the web um, and in in sort of the construction of networks for for using the web um, and in you know sort of stuff stuff related to that. And then there was this terrible bust called the dot com dot com sort of bust at that at the end of the dot com boom but around that same time in the late 90s file sharing of music became easy and popular through through various you know tools i forget what there, there was i mean napster was the most famous one yeah um, winamp was the, the winamp. popular music player back then and, yeah uh, yeah and there was what was the one called like gnu something um but uh anyway but yeah but but so there's sort of like this incredible explosion of sort of computer stuff yeah. <laughs> caused this explosion of the spread of music which caused sort of a collapse in the music industry and and so it's it's just it is kind of it's kind of like again i say sort of this ironic thing that like at the basically the same time the computer people who caused this sort of crash in the music industry had their own had their own crash uh in in jobs and and stuff like that but 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 you found your way out of it uh, and that's 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 so interesting that um uh you mentioned your your you know you you had that uh first experience with a tandy when you were young and making your own games a lot of a lot of the guests on lean pub as i'm sure you can guess are computer programmers and stuff like that and have a background in that and so many people have an origin story of, of, for programming along those lines and you can tell that the sort of person's vintage by like you had you had to write your own programs <laughs> you, you sort of bought physical magazines magazines, you know, things like that. One question I wanted to ask you um, going into this was, did your sort of, do you feel like, you know, your study of music helped you or influenced your understanding of, of software and programming and design? Well, I don't know. I get that question a lot, actually. I don't know because I have nothing to compare to. <laughs> uh, but people have, have said, yeah, people have told me that it's actually uh, quite common that people from music get into into programming there might be like i don't know if any of that's true right but there might be some relationship between the fact that it's music uses abstract language and abstract notation 
to express something entirely different. Like if you if you didn't know what sheet music was and you see that for the first time, there's no way you can imagine that that represents music, right? It's so so separate. Of course, we're, we're used to seeing that, but but uh, it's just such a big distance from the language on the paper and what that actually represents. Uh, um, and uh, so there's that. There's like a lot of things I have always felt are. I don't know if that's just music and programming. Maybe it's a lot of other disciplines as well that have it, but patterns and, and structures and reasoning about structures and sort of, um, yeah, like, for example, there's there's been this, this every now and then that flares up at a conference, right? This is programming art. And my answer to that is music engineering, because a lot of, Music is, in fact, if, if you listen to pop songs, right, there's, there's of course, there's genres, etc. But within a genre, there's, there's similarities. How does that happen? Well, because they share patterns, because they approach, how do I get from this point to that point in a similar way as this other song, right? So, so there's, there's patterns, there's, there's sort of repeatable, they're, they're not, well, they're, you, you can steal bits of music, but the patterns are not stealing the exact music. It's sort of solving the problem in the same way as as other music does it. How does you know reggae make a rhythm, or how does techno music do it? That those are patterns. Um, and I was in film music, and there's lots of things that um, you know. How, how do you make uh, uh, something sound scary, or or something uh, exciting, or build up attention? Right? There's there's patterns there, and and you can. You know, if if you have that 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 baggage, if you know if you know the right patterns, you you can sort of construct your own version of it, which is still original, but uses the same underlying philosophy to to solve a problem. And some of it is very accidental, even like um, uh, you know the 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 music in Bonnie and Clyde with the banjos, if you recall, that has been used for car chases for many decades even uh, I think they came up with it for whatever reason because they knew a guy who played banjo maybe um, so so and and same with sort of the, like the sound of, uh, of, of of Hitchcock movies right there's that has been imitated uh, without being direct copies but sort of you know the the, the choice of harmonies and melodies and rhythms and, and instruments um so in that sense yeah maybe maybe music is engineering and programming can be arts uh i don't think all programming is art but but uh, you can well you can use paint to make paintings or to paint your wall one is art and the other is not it's the same with code i guess yeah it's, it's so it's so interesting to think about i'm um, also sort of borrowing terms from these different fields to sort of describe similar types of activity like you write you write software and, and you write music and you and you and you write books um we've got we've got one of our best sellers uh, on lean pub is called composing software by a guy named eric elliott who produces who does does music as well um, oh. and he's got like i think his cover of the book is a kind of waveform um and he, he talks about about sort of compose not not the word writing but the word composing and um, one of the terms that's obviously very important for you for anyone who's familiar with your talks and in your books and, and your blog and stuff like that is the term modeling which which is which is just fascinating because I mean that's one normally when one's thinking of sort of like music or software or books 
you know, the, the uh, terms like writing or even composing are more familiar, but modeling is this word that comes more from like science, like physics and, and, and yeah. stuff like that typically. Right. And it's, it's this level of abstraction. That's like sort of at the same time as it's kind of daunting to sort of think about, right. Like theoretical physics, sort of building, building a model kind of thing. Uh, when you, when you watch particularly your videos, um, when you're sort of using post-it notes and stuff like that, it's kind of like, well, you're, you're, you're composing a, a model in, and I imagine that I've never made music, but like, you know, you're sort of like moving parts around and like, it's this iterative process. And like, you sort of, you just get started and you sort of figure out where to go. Uh, and so I'm super interested in asking you about about models and metaphors and things like that. Uh, but before we get into that, we probably need to sort of like lay the foundation for the conversation by talking about what domain-driven design is um, right. uh, and and what kind of design we're actually talking about, right? Because people might be thinking about there's all kinds of things that where the word design applies. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit just for, imagine you're talking to someone, which I'm sure you have many times, who's like, I'm not a programmer. What do you do and what's domain-driven design? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's designed in the sense that it's, you know, creating something that solves a problem, right? That, 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 uh, uh, as, as Jerry Weinberg, uh, used to say, um, design is a bet on the future, right? You're, you're trying to structure something for a specific purpose, hoping that that future will exist. And, uh, but I'm, I'm going very philosophical right away. Um, more specifically, it's just how, how do you build software, right? That's that's the problem. That's the question. And I feel we're still in the stone age of that. Um, so that's what design is, this kind of design is about. It's not visual design. I like to call it invisible design. It's like the for software, there's the, the bits you see, the user interface, etc. Um, but there's the whole, there's the, the iceberg under the water, basically. So that's more that's that's the area I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in uh domain driven design specifically is um yeah you could call it a a way of thinking about uh, software design um some people call it an applied philosophy which is maybe um maybe accurate but maybe a bit too distancing or too abstract for people uh, but i like to think more of it as a as a discipline it's a discipline for how to build software so a discipline in the sense of there's a bunch of principles and the more you try to apply that the more you use you know techniques and methods to apply those principles the more of the benefits you're going to get um and so within that discipline we're saying well um you know as the name suggests domain driven uh, we we believe that uh, a software design that is really rooted in the, the problem domain, right? Where um, the people who build the software understand the problem domain well enough, so that you know the the opposite is somebody tells you add a button there, and if I click it, it should do that thing, right? You can build software that way, but it's not going to um you know fit the problem very well or or scale in complexity very well right you can do that at a small scale but if you imagine building an entire bank like that it becomes problematic of course because you have sort of a random huge assortment of of stuff doing things that nobody really knows why they're doing that and what they're doing it for um so that that deep understanding of the domain is is like the core principle um and then how do you do that well um, you're you're always modeling, right? If if uh, if I explain something to you, um, 
I have a, a, a mental model of what that is in my head. And maybe you have a mental model. Maybe you, you have never heard of it, so you don't have it. Or maybe you're thinking of something else that you're associating with this. But I'm trying to communicate my mental model to your head, basically, through language. So in domain-driven design, we... Um, we want to make those models much more explicit, right? Even if you're just on your own writing a bit of code, you are basically modeling, right? You're shaping an understanding of what is the problem like that you're solving and what is my solution like? What, why, you know, how is it going to work? Why is it structured that way? Um, but we believe that um, doing that with much deeper collaboration between domain experts and, and, and engineers is going to help or between engineers as well, right? Um, instead of just having models in in our heads and trying to communicate those, let's let's visualize those models. Let's find ways of of drawing this and uh, and not just drawing, right? We want uh, that's another sort of core idea there that these these models themselves should be shared, right? If you if you have an entirely different model of how your business should work and then then the engineer you're going to end up with software that doesn't work for you so this is this is super interesting yeah then what, what a great explanation i mean just one one thing that you you given in the essays in your book is sort of like concrete kind of case study examples so we can sort of hone in on sort of what we're talking about when we're talking about you know the concept of a domain and um it, it reminds whenever i hear, hear hear that people talking about domain driven design i always think about this great vanity fair article from years ago about like an nbc news presenter who got in a controversy and the company got taken over by a company that insisted that its executives have no domain ex zero domain expertise which is just fascinating in itself but one one way to think about like when we we're talking about domain right and that in that and it was sort of news right that's what they meant this sort of yeah. executives were not supposed to know anything about news what they were supposed to understand was business right at that that, that level of abstraction and uh, the, the sort of concrete example that you use in one of your essays and in, in a bunch of your talks is a sort of offshore oil rig and one one can imagine you know so you've got a bunch of a bunch of people who are like into business they want to make a profit they're good at they're good at sort of you know being executives right then you've got a bunch of people who are programmers they're good at programming they they understand a lot about programming and you bring them together and you're like now make an oil rig <laughs> That's like, that wouldn't work. <laughs> we don't know anything about oil rigs, and then and then you've got the people who work on the oil rig, and the and the, 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 that type of and the type of engineers who design them. Those are the real domain experts, of course. The uh, real domain experts, but then but then now the sort of the super interesting challenge is like, how do you you're you're these expert programmers, you're these expert kind of hopefully kind of business people, and you're these expert kind of people that flying on the helicopter out to the rig, expert at living there for weeks on end, doing this dangerous job. How do you develop a, a, a language? Um, and the term the term is ubiquitous language in domain-driven design. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of like nuts and bolts of how, like you, if you were brought into a project, how do you get all those people talking the same way? Yeah, yeah. so so um, yeah, you're hitting at the core of, of, of one of the problems, right? If we're, if we're trying to build things for complex environments, it's hard to understand everything and to know everything, et cetera. So uh, all, all large complex projects are, are dealing with this. Um, and any environment will develop their own language, right? It's, language is a very social thing, right? It's a, it's a, a sort of a natural organic process that we, that we form natural language, right? Where 
um, you know, we, we find, we build a language that solves our problem typically. So we call it jargon, right? The oil rig engineers will have jargon. The business people will have jargon. The marketing people will have jargon. It serves a purpose, right? It, it helps them to abstract and to communicate much faster. Same, same in software, right? If I had to say every time, well, um, send a message to this uh, other uh, service that is running there that is able to store information and retrieve it, it would be much faster to say, you know, store it in the database. Um, so we built, we built this jargon. Uh, but of course, if you have these worlds that need to, you know, collaborate and they have their own language, it becomes uh, very hard, which any uh, business person who has been in a meeting with software engineers will, you know, <laughs> complain about that. Oh, they're talking about all this technical stuff that I don't, that I don't know or understand. Um, and so in, in domain-driven design, uh, we're sort of acknowledging that, right? Language is messy, it's organic, it's evolving. It might be ambiguous, right? Because people are, you know, using words or they, they are adopting words from something else or, you know, maybe the business changes, maybe the market changes. Um, some of the language is sort of legacy, right? It sticks around, but it, it, it doesn't fit anymore. Um, or they make up their own words, or they mislearn the words, or they have different words for the same thing. It's it's very messy. But in software, that doesn't work very well, right? We have a very strict, well, we have programming languages that right now are still very much, you know, put a comma in the wrong place and the whole thing, uh, you know, refuses to, to work. Um, so, and not just not just for the code itself, right? But just for, for clarity, you need um, sort of a very precise language. Right? So this this former language, right? The, the, the organic natural language, we call that the domain language. It evolves to fit the domain. Um, and, and domain designers saying, well, look at that domain language, try to understand it and learn it and, and capture it. But when you do that, you're also going to make it much more strict more formal, right? You're going to to uh, you know weed out the ambiguity. You're going to define terms. You're going to say, well, from now on, this is what we call a sales order, or this is what we call um, I don't know a, 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 a drill in the oil rig uh, example. Um, like define that and and attach properties and and, and behaviors to it, etc. Right? And that language. Um, so that, that strict language is, it's a design language, right? It's not a natural language anymore. So we as software designers, as engineers, as analysts, testers, etc., we're all part of the design. Uh, we built this language, but we should do that in collaboration with the domain experts, because if we don't, we end up with, again, this very sort of technical programmeries language that, you know, doesn't really make sense to people outside of, of software. Well, and you and you can end up with this disconnect between your your exactly. design and reality, which is what your essay is about. And you talk about this very specific. So I want to talk about the domain experts because this is super, you, you you like you have this great example of, of of how this can work in practice. So for example, on this oil rig, for example, like we're thinking about an offshore platform, right? Um, which I'm sure everybody can have, get an image of that in their head. And and there's this concept of an alarm, right? And now so maybe maybe some software. Some some programmers are are tasked with like come up with this sort of like way of setting off this alarm. There's going to be some threshold and various sort of systems, and it's going to set off an alarm and um and log that alarm and how when the alarm starts and when it ends. Um 
And so, and so one could think, you know, there's this sort of, I, I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm always like sort of like a sort of, in a sense, a kind of data, a meta skeptic about data, basically, because people will be like, show me the data. And it's like, sure, here's when the alarm started. Here's when the alarm went off. That's how long the incident was. But of course, and that's way, a very, very programmery, you know. Yeah, exactly. Here's the data. Therefore, that's, that's the truth. That's the truth. But of course, on a rig, when the alarm goes off, you're like, okay, fair enough. It's but noisy now and the lights are flashing and lights everybody's are... running around. So yeah, you, the, 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 it, yeah, the technique yeah, of involuntary stimulation is being used to mess with you. That's what an alarm is. But if it if you can't solve the problem right away, you turn the damn alarm off so you can fix the problem. But then yeah. then your data doesn't show, you know, it doesn't, your data doesn't reflect the fact that the, the when the alarm stopped, it didn't mean the emergency was over. Exactly. So the, the logs are misrepresenting reality. Um, and, uh, well, there's a, there's a quote from, um, John Gall's book, uh, called systematics, which talks about how systems work and fail, uh, any kinds of systems, not he hated computers. So it's not just about computers, but uh, all kinds of systems, but he says that reality is what's reported to the system. So you, you believe within a, within a system, an organization, for example, that, you know, imagine that you, you have a feedback, feedback uh, form, but it doesn't work. And then management thinks, oh, nobody's complaining. We're doing excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so reality is what's reported to the system. If we only log when the alarm starts and when the alarm is turned off, then all the, all the incidents will look like very short incidents because what actually happens is people turn off the sound so they can focus on solving the problem, which might actually take a few hours or or even longer. Um, and in 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 the you know in in, in the essay, uh, so my 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 co-author uh, Rebecca Wurstbrock, um, she was consulting for for this OIRIC, and um, and they were sort of figuring out what to what problem to solve and what to to work. She was hired to you know help think about design and how to improve it, etc. They hadn't really a specific problem, but then at that point, an oil rig exploded in uh, in the Gulf, um, and it wasn't so. The company she was working with was doing sensors and and um, you know. Uh, well, when you when you um, when you drill holes, I don't know. I'm not an expert, right? But when you when you drill holes, it creates a lot of friction and noise and and um, and heat. And they use a, a chemical substance, a, a drilling fluid or a drilling mud, they call it, um, which they they put in the holes to as a lubricant, but also to push debris up and take it out. And then they they measure the you know the friction and the heat and everything, and they actually change the chemical substance of that fluid as they go to sort of balance uh, the to the properties they want. Um, and um, so and that company was sort of building the the whole uh, you know the, the the sensors and the software and and that whole whole infrastructure. So they started thinking, well, this 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 OREC exploded. It wasn't theirs. It wasn't their material. So, but still, they they wanted to know, um, you know, is this is this uh, could this happen with us? Basically, right? What are we missing? Are we are we overlooking something? Right? Are are we as safe as we think we are? So they looked at at, at lots lots of things, and then they discovered the whole logging problem, right? And um, and what you do in a situation like that is you start looking for um, all kinds of like scenarios, right? You start asking, how does it really happen? You you try to or what you should you know, what you should do, right? You you try to 
move away from sort of your mental model of how the system works, um, you know, where everything seems to fit, but you try to move out of that and go to like what actually happens, what happens when an alarm sets off, you know, the noise, the people running around, what do they do, et cetera. And that's how they figure that out, that, you know, actually those logs are, are misrepresenting reality. Uh, and then, and then what you try to do is you find awkward scenarios. So you start looking, that's, you know, a technique for, for, for figuring out something with a lot of complexity, right? You start asking for, um, you know, are there scenarios where you don't know exactly what's happening or what should happen, right? Or, or where something is not really well understood or where nobody can tell you how the system reacts in that situation or how the system should react even, right? And so they start asking questions about that, like what if, what if uh, two alarms sound at the same time? Well, that doesn't, that doesn't work, right? You can only physically have, have one alarm, but if two incidents happen, maybe two drills, you know, I don't know, right? Two things happen at once. Um, it, what happens with the alarms, right? And that's how they sort of started, you know, this is just one example, but they started sort of teasing out these, these, these weird, awkward scenarios. And, uh, and eventually it sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the solution they came up with um, is that there's something in between missing, right? So you introduce something new in the design uh, in this case, it was they call it alert condition. Um, so it's the it's not the alarm. It's a, there, there was the direct connection between the sensors for the drills, etc., and and the sensors detecting some threshold and sounding the alarm and logging that. And now they were separating that. They were saying, well, if the sensors measure something, it creates an alert condition, and alarms are really just the the expression of the alert condition. So by separating that they now could actually answer much more advanced questions. What happens if two alert conditions happen? Well, maybe one is more severe than the other. Maybe there's rules about which triggers an alarm, etc. cetera. Um, so you're basically changing. You're not just, you know, we think of it as solving a problem, but it's by, um, we think of it as, you know, understand the problem, come up with some potential solutions, pick the best one, you know, maybe make some trade-offs and that's it. But it's by sort of engaging with the solution, by trying solutions sometimes, that you start seeing how the what the problem is really like, right? This is a very indirect way, right? It comes from the logs are not reflecting reality to finding a much better model for representing the whole the whole thing and and improving like the software uh, significantly. Um, which you know, the longer explanation is in the book, of course. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 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 super interesting. Um, one of the one of the things I wanted just to sort of like, and you know, when we when we when we're just to give people a kind of image of like actually doing this kind of work, right? It's yeah. often it's often very specifically with people in a room with a whiteboard, with yeah, you know, sort of drawing and post-it and, and post notes. And I I love. I mean, I've I've had Alberto Brandolini on the podcast in the past, so we've talked about event storming and stuff like that. But like and Kanban people and things like that, but. The idea of like, you know, I mean, we're all familiar with probably with the image of like, you know, Einstein in front of the blackboard, right? But the, the, the I just find one thing I find so fascinating about all of this is the invention of the post-it note and the use of the post-it note, because you can, you can, it, it's a thing, it's an object, basically, it can be a defined object. So this is an, this, this, this post-it note represents an alert going off, but you can, I'm using my hands for anyone who can't see, but you know, you can, you can actually move, you can pick it up and move, move them around. And this ability yes. to reorder and reposition things is actually a, a very sophisticated tool for modeling 
systems. The point of, of, of post-its or stickies in general, they, sh- they shouldn't be called stickies. They should be called removies because you can move. <laughs> that's, that's the main point. That's why they're so, so practical for modeling. Of course, you can just sort of, and, and I do this as well, not just like moving because it's in the wrong place, but just you have maybe, you know, a few post-its that represent, I don't know, a process or a stream of things or something, but you can just move them and say, well, what happens if this happens first? I'm talking about these awkward scenarios. What happens if somebody pays the invoice before you even sent the invoice or before you even made it? Oh, that doesn't happen. Never, never, never. Well, actually, (laughs) one time, right? That's how you get there, right? You start asking these these questions. Does this never happen? Will this ever change, right? Where does, does this go wrong? What happens if this happens first? Well, actually... Uh, we we had a customer once, and they they uh, bought the same thing every month. So we send them the same invoice every month. So they just paid, and we were this one month we were late with sending invoices, and they already paid. But then we sent the invoice, but because we didn't get the the original payment wasn't matched to the invoice, the system thought that the invoice was unpaid. So it starts sending reminders, and then of course the customer is not happy about getting reminders for something they paid and. It was all resolved with a phone call, right? And and some apologies, but um, you know you can now use that awkward scenario as a way to find a better model, right? The model was, um, you know, there's an invoice, and then a payment comes in, and the payment gets matched. Now you can make a, if you want to, right? If it's worth it, make a smarter model that says, well, a payment remains somewhere in the sort of unmatched status, and when a when a new invoice is made, you can actually check for unmatched payments and see if that actually makes sense to match it. Something like that, right? It's it's a very trivial example, uh, but you're sort of teasing teasing at the edges, at the weird cases of of your understanding and and pushing that. Even if you end up not changing the model at all, right? If you say, "Well, this is an edge case, we can solve it with a phone call. It's not worth developer time," but it gives you insight in sort of what. Uh, how, what are the limits of, of my understanding? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's actually, so thank you very much for saying that, the limits of your understanding. It's so interesting because one of the things you talk about is that how modeling is kind of like the cheapest the cheapest kind of work you're going to do. I mean, it takes time. Time is the most expensive thing we have, of course, but like, it's so interesting, this idea of like, um, like, okay, let's think about this scenario. Let's, let's, we can construct a model, you know, and it could be like post-it notes and, or, or, st- or movies and, and, you know, and, and lines and, and, and words and, and metaphors and, you know, nouns and, and find all the nouns and all that kind of stuff. And then you can decide, but we're not going to build that, right? Because yeah. we, we've modeled it out and we've, so we know what we would do if we were to build that, but actually it's, you know, we're, but now that we've modeled it out, we can actually make an informed decision about whether it's worth building. Yeah, all all design is trade-offs, right? There's a this this infinite space of of problems, and you select some that you actually you know are going to bother solving, and then there's an infinite space of solutions, and and you can't like some sometimes people leave. Oh, you look at all possible solutions and you pick the best. But that's unknowable, right? You you cannot do that. You, you you use heuristics. You are sort of edging your way and trying something and and exploring a bit. Um, and modeling is yeah, it's the cheapest thing you can do because well, people people complain sometimes, right? Oh, why are you spending so much time at the whiteboard? Shouldn't you be coding? Well, um, if you make a mistake in your fundamental understanding of how it should work, and you code the whole thing and you put it in production and people use it and now you figure out that it's wrong it's going to be 
a lot more expensive than just you know throwing away some post-its and and trying again um the, the model well you, you said earlier right uh, a model you know maybe being that concept of modeling being scary um it doesn't have to be very formal but it is like science in the sense that what a model is in science right it's it's an incomplete abstraction of reality right it's how we understand some natural phenomenon and um they can be very simple like my understanding of uh, if if i if i drop my phone i know it will you know fall to the floor and possibly break uh, my my model of gravity is good enough for my daily life um but i don't know quantum physics i i don't know exactly what happens at quantum level if i drop my phone i don't need to know that level of detail but um when you're trying to solve a problem you want to get close enough to the level of detail that is or or a little bit over even the level of detail that you that you are going to need so you know where the where that edge is right and then same as in science right what what does a, a scientific model do it allows you to make predictions about natural phenomena right it's I, I predict that my phone will fall to the floor if i let go of it uh that's that's the predictive the model gives us predictability in software, if I have an understanding of how my system or if I have a good model of how the system works, which is not like in big complex legacy systems, nobody has the full model anymore. But if you can have that or in some area have that, now your system becomes predictable. That's that's one aspect of it. And in software, we don't care about that, that alone, but we care about um, if I'm going to change the software, is it still going to behave correctly? Right, we are always modifying software. Maybe, well, a bug is a misunderstanding in a model, right? That's we we thought something would work a certain way, but maybe, or maybe it's the interaction between two things that that works differently, or whatever. Um, so there's a second level of understanding, which is if I understand how my system works, uh, I can also understand how modifying the system will impact the rest of the of the system right so if i make this change to get this specific behavior will it impact these other behaviors and in what way if you understand that then software development becomes a lot cheaper effectively because a lot of like writing code is is not not the job right it's reading code it's understanding code it's having to figure out where in this huge you know legacy mess of this you know bank which has been building software for 40 years where if I change this, what else is going to be affected, right? How much stuff knows about this thing or is coupled to this thing or is you know cohesive with this thing? That's that's the value of of, of good deep deep modeling. Yeah, it's um you reminded me of something uh an, an experience I had one time. So I was doing I was doing a doctorate um, in English literature and I had a colleague a friend who was doing a, a a doctorate in maths. And one day I saw him sort of this was in I was in England and and one day one day he sort of like had his backpack on and he was obviously going somewhere. I was like, oh mate, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to Edinburgh. The the penguin the penguins aren't hatching at the zoo. And I'm like, oh, now I finally understand what you do. And he 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 worked on sort of like um, mathematical modeling of um, fluid dynamics at the sort of micro level. But he got hired to help the help the, and it had nothing to do with the fluid dynamics. He just he got hired to sort of like help the penguin eggs hatch at the zoo 
or whatever it was, it was something along those lines, because he was really good at this, this modeling. And what, what you're talking about is like kind of figuring out what are the factors that are involved in this and what's the, what's the sort of higher level system that's at work and you know, understanding the system, but understanding systems itself is the stuff that makes, that makes it so interesting. And you, you apologized at the beginning of the interview for sort of getting philosophical right away, but you kind of can't help it, you know, when you're talking about things at this level. And um, so you've got, you've got an, a really interesting um, essay in your book uh, called Critically Engaged with models and if you if you if you could I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the idea of critical engagement with models and what what that means yeah um, yeah I, I guess it uh, it grew a bit from the frustration that people sort of jump on the next thing uh, and it will solve their problem right and then uh, you have the you know the, the hype cycles right where it, you know, it gets hyped and then goes through a valley of despair and then sort of it finds it it's it's balance point where it's actually being used for the sort of things it's meant for. Um, and so, well, we, we say models, it could be frameworks, it could be organizational models, it could be anything, right? It's not, it could be software, it could be something entirely different. But the whole idea there is, is um, if you really want to understand, if, you, if you're adopting some model of something right and and the examples we use are organization models so the spotify model or team topologies or um agile fluency or you know safe for like well safe is more like a mix of stuff as opposed to an actual model uh but if you adopt those um like are you doing that based on a proper understanding of how well that will serve your needs right and um and these things like what what any model tends to do right when you see it it can look appealing it can make you feel like okay this this works this makes sense all the parts of it seem to fit together in a way that makes sense but it doesn't show you what it's not doing right it's it's uh so team topologies is a way for organizing software teams it has patterns and, and interaction modes and sort of concepts attached to it but it's not showing what it's not for Right, so if, if you throw it at, a, at at your organization, maybe you have actually a different kind of problem that that needs solving. Um, so what we're proposing is how to actually use these different models to compare them to each other, to sort of have them well almost compete um, by by uh, and by doing that, you figure out what sort of their different contexts are. Like these models were created in a context. The Spotify model obviously was created in, in the context of Spotify. Uh, I'm actually consulting for Spotify and, and some people there call the Spotify model, they call it the Spotify 2012 model because it just happened to be how they did things at a certain point in time. Um, but if you start like comparing these different models, you start seeing how they put different focuses. They have different building blocks. Uh, you understand you know, the, the value system behind it, right? Um, for example, both Spotify model and team topologies care a lot about or, or highly value team autonomy. Um, so they have something something similar. If you're looking for team autonomy, that makes a lot of sense, of course, to, to, to adopt these. But then if you look at, at Spotify model, it uses, um, it has uh, chapters and guilds, which are basically two uh, structures or patterns for, not for organizing the work, but for organizing how you learn, one is for how individuals learn, right? I want to 
you know, I need to learn more about Kubernetes or domain-driven design or something else. Can I find other people to organize with and 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 learn together? And the other is institutional learning, where you know you develop standards in an organization or or you know RFCs or ways of doing things. Um, so Spotify model because of its underlying value system, which emphasizes both individual learning and institutional learning, has patterns, building blocks for doing that. Team topologies does not. Right? You could fit it in there, right? You could say, well, I take team topologies and I'm going to use these, these team types uh, to, to organize for learning, but it's not built for that. It's not designed for that. Uh, and by comparing that, you see, oh, wait a minute, just adopting team topologies it, like team topologies doesn't tell you we're not we we don't have patterns for institutional learning. It just says here's patterns for you know moving fast and and high autonomy and limited collaboration etc. Um, uh, you know it, it, it's it's built for purpose, but if that's not your problem, it's not the right solution for it. I've worked on a, a for for a client that does um, the software for uh, the the drug fluid pumps in hospitals for chemotherapy, basically, that sort of thing. So putting poison in people's body, they don't care about, you know, uh, fast flow and, and team autonomy. They care about safety, right? Am I going to give the right dose to the right patient at the right time? If not, we might kill somebody. We don't care about releasing, you know, or deploying 50 times a day. No, we care about being absolutely certain. How do you organize for that? If you then use a model for fast flow, something's not going to work, right? It's going to feel very, you're going to get friction. Yeah, that's, that's what you call those, you call those life critical systems, right? And, 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 um, you know, there's just, just very, it's very different. Um, if you're sort of like, uh, if you've got a kind of, a kind of, like, a, like say, example for a game, like a video game, for example, like, and, or, or Facebook or something like that, where like deploying all the time might be kind of, in a, in a set, I mean, you know, anyone working at any of the big companies will be like huge risk, huge catastrophes can happen too, but, but they're not life critical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, but the, yeah, the, the whole idea is just, just figure out if the models you're adopting in your organization, in your personal life, whatever, if they fit and if they, uh, if, if, if you have to change them, if you can adopt them as this, um, and even, even, you know, sometimes it's fine to adopt something as this, even if it's not perfect. But now you know the difference. And it's it, it's interesting too, like the again, it's sort of like you know to sort of like make a concrete example of when we're talking about models. So models for learning, for example. Um, you I, I'm yeah. recalling um I, I interviewed someone a while ago who who worked at Spotify and they said that uh, I think I'm I'm recalling two things that I hope they're I hope they're both right. One was that when it came to kind of like equipment, there was just kind of like extra equipment around in the office. So for example, you didn't have to like apply for a new keyboard or something like that, right? There would just be a keyboard there. And uh and you 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 didn't have to sort of go through a sort of formal process of kind of getting new stuff. And this was just a, a decision that Spotify made, if I'm recalling correctly, about efficiency, right? And sort of a lot of people would be like, well, aren't the pro aren't they gonna take them home and steal them if you just have this equipment around or stuff like that and like yeah there will be some leakage but but overall it's a better system and i remember i think i recall correctly as well is that you were allowed without asking permission to just use a budget to go traveling to conferences and stuff like that and you were just it was just up to you um yeah. uh, that was just the decision they made because it was more efficient in the end to let people make their own kind of training decisions rather than try to make those decisions for them. And that that level of kind of modeling is, the, is super, super fascinating, right? Because it's not it's not all 
programming. Yeah, uh, those, those, those two examples you mentioned, I, I don't know if, if they're true, but they sound very Spotify-like, so <laughs> probably true. Uh, one, one thing you talked about, actually, that, that sort of really struck a chord with me that you mentioned earlier was... Um, about being in the stone age still um when it comes to when it comes to programming and and that reminded me of um two two examples i have from the podcast one was i actually got had the privilege of interviewing jerry weinberg um years ago um yeah and uh it was a great interview i still remember it and one thing he talked about was like i mean i think the first computer he ever encountered was himself like his first job was being a computer or something like that but um uh but he talked about being at sort of like in a meeting at an ibm meeting in sort of the early days when ibm got into computing and the how the executives were aghast when they learned that programming wasn't a one-off thing. Like, oh yeah, you programmed the machine, we're done, get rid of those programmers. And and another, there was a, someone I interviewed who I think was a computer science professor in the United States who talked about like Git being the moment when like, it's equivalent to when surgeons learned they need to wash their hands, you know, and like that we're, we're still in these very early stages in a sense. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little, before we go on to sort of the last part of the interview where we talked about sort of very practical matters uh, or directly practical matters, what did, what do you mean when you say we're sort of in a sense, kind of still in the stone age? Well, um, we're, we're constantly rebuilding everything or, or trying to change it. We're, we're, we don't know, how to build software that will last a hundred or a thousand years, right? Some of it might survive, right? We might, th there are still things standing from thousands of, Stonehenge is still standing, not because it was genius architecture, but because the most everything else got destroyed, but that accidentally sort of proved to be a much more stable structure, right? Same with, you know, we look at, we look at uh, architecture from, I don't know, the Greeks or the Romans and we say, oh, they were geniuses. No, most of the stuff is gone. Some of it's stood standing by accident, but we learn from that. We learn how to keep, you know, why the Pantheon is still, still standing, even though it's, you know, this, this structure that I, as a, as a, a layman, I would never imagine that it could last so long, but it did. Um, so we don't have that knowledge yet, right? We don't know how to build long lasting software. Um, our demands are, are much higher, right? If you, if you want to repair a bridge, um, you close it down, right? You reroute traffic for a bit. Um, we don't close down software systems, right? They, they need to be working 24 seven. Um, most of them, well, so, some still, my bank still closes their software systems sometimes in the weekends, but, uh, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of the stuff we don't really have patterns for. We don't have literature for long lasting stuff. We don't have literature for huge, um, changes, right? Where we, we're either like small incremental improvements or replacing the whole thing. And most of the time, even that fails. Right there's, uh, it's called the second version syndrome. Right, right where the the second version of something never succeeds or almost never. Um, so in that sense, I think we're still very. Uh, it's still very young. Um, the way we we program, right? It's it's very. You have to learn this abstract language. You have to type it uh, in sort of very precise thing. Um, I think in that, like, I think all co all programming languages are bad, right? They're all very primitive, but we're being held back by 
by programmers themselves. Programmers are right now in general, not open to switching to visual languages. And because of that, like, well, they exist, right? Scratch is a beautiful programming language for kids where you use blocks. It's very clever. You could actually you know, do that um, to, you know, to do refactoring in a smarter way where you move the blocks instead of moving bits of code, right? Textual code. Um, but because nobody seems to believe in it, because the investment to invent a language like that, uh, that is actually like a next generation from what we have now, is is very high. So, you know, the the environment is just not there for major steps in there. We did have one big major step, of course, which is machine learning, which is you know, or or, or genetic algorithms, stuff like that, code figuring itself out. But I also feel like that's very, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's statistics on speed, right? It's it's not actual intelligence, um, and there's no evidence yet, as far as I'm aware, that we will get to actual intelligence uh, with with stuff like that. So it could go any any way. It's it's invisible where where this could go. I I don't believe in 500 years we'll be writing code the same way we do now, but I also don't believe that the sort of current alternatives like low codes uh, apps and stuff like that are, are going to be the answer. I mean, they are the answer for some things, right? The history of of programming language and, and, and software in general has been higher levels and higher levels of abstraction, right? We're not punching holes in a card anymore, right? We, we're not doing doing machine code. We, we can, you know, do very advanced stuff with very, very little code, right? If you... You know, I, I can deploy a, a, a service somewhere in, in, in minutes and, and have, you know, glued together some existing other services and I have an app uh, that's higher levels of abstraction. But um, I don't know. I feel like we're not. And of course, it's all very speculative because maybe I'm wrong and it's like this forever, right? We're now at the end. Well, but I mean, you just, it's, it, that's, that's such a great answer because you just gave us a very great example of critically engaging with models, right? Which is like, you know, does programming, like when you, even the term like textual programming, you know what I mean? Like sort of all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, hold on a second. I, I, I was always in this model that I wasn't aware of that like programming had to be typing and, and symbols um, yeah. uh, and like textual yeah, the, symbols. The, and the, it, the structure it, it, of a program, the yeah. structure of a program is not text. Right. If you think about it, you think you think in 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 blocks of things. You think in in relationships between things. You think in you know passing stuff around. But all of that is using just you know the characters typed in in a in a linear in linear files. Right. So there's that that discrepancy between those two is is I think to me that's the evidence that there's something else that that we haven't discovered yet. Um, just in the interest of time, uh, moving on to the the last part of the interview, where we talk about sort of, as I said earlier, a little bit more practical matters. And and believe it or not, there are people who skip to the last part uh, <laughs> of the of the podcast to sort of hear about the person's experience as a writer and things like that. But you're also a, a conference founder. You founded uh, the DDD Europe Conference. Um, and I just wanted to ask you for, for, if you could talk for a few minutes about how, because we're still, we're still in sort of, who knows where we are in the, the current cycle of the pandemic, but how did, how did the pandemic affect that project? Yeah. Um, well, we were very lucky because we had our, uh, 2020 edition in early February, um, which was, you know, people were aware that 
this thing might be coming and we actually had like um you know the the hand sanitizers in you know in different places in the venue stuff like that but nobody was wearing masks yet or anything like that um so we were very lucky that you know i i have friends who organize conferences who who lost a lot of money uh we lost money as well but but uh not uh not dramatically um and then yeah the first it, it wasn't just a conference for me but but everything in the first few like before that i was always traveling to 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 clients uh we were doing uh in-person training all everything was you know was was, was on site and uh, we spent the first you know uh two months basically canceling stuff and postponing stuff um but then uh yeah and then and then i started thinking how how to you know how to approach this and i didn't like um i still don't really like the the typical online conferences which is um well I, it, it, it's nothing wrong with it right but it's not the sort of experience i'm looking for uh it's it's you know people have it on on their phone maybe and they're, they're watching the conference while they work it's like TV in the background or TV with a chat box, maybe. Um, and and Domain Driven Design Europe, the conference has always focused very much on, you know, interaction, on engagement. We had uh, lots of like hands-on labs where people spent, you know, two hours in a small group with a with a speaker, um, you know, modeling, coding, debating, um, trying stuff, etc. And uh, yeah, we were afraid that we would lose all of that. Um, but coincidentally, I was uh, in an, in a training by Dave Snowden at the start of the of the lockdown, um, which was supposed to be an, an in person training, but it was moved uh, online. And um, so he talks about you know dealing with complexity and 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 how to act in chaos and all all that stuff. Right? He's a complexity uh, theorist. Maybe that's the best description. And uh, so that was the perfect time to be in a workshop with him because he adapted the workshop to talk about crises and how to act in a crisis. And one of the things he talks about, um, well, which I already knew, but then I I really got it, is uh, in a crisis, you cannot innovate, right? Stuff is on fire, right? The first thing you do is put out the fire. That's where your energy goes. Now, to go, actually, to go back to Jerry Weinberg again, he, he once said, um, uh, it may look like a crisis, but it's the end of an illusion, right? So um, stuff has always been going bad, but now it's it's manifesting, right? And that's what what a pandemic is, right? It's not that a pandemic is unpredictable, but it had to happen eventually. Nobody knew when, but something like that had to happen eventually. But so in a in a crisis, you cannot innovate. You're trying to you know save the furniture, basically. But um, what you can do is uh, what Dave Snowden calls acceptation. So acceptation is the way he, his example is um, he's been like uh, anything that can be used in a hotel room that can be used as a bottle opener. He has used it as a bottle opener. <laughs> so clothes hangers or whatever. Uh, that's, that's using something for a different purpose than it was intended for. And then, um, and then you can iterate on it. So it's not like pure innovation, but it's you, you take something, you use it in a different way. You you sort of try to create an awareness of where that happens. You find those promising things, and then you can iterate and actually build like a much better bottle opener, maybe. And then you have invented something. 
so that's sort of the you know the 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 context behind it. So I started thinking, okay, what what do we have? What 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 sort of things do we have, and how can we abuse them or reshape them or or use them differently? Um, so we had all those hands-on labs. We had an audience that actually came to the conference to do the hands-on labs, right? Not just it's not an audience. We, basically, because all these years we have been doing all these these labs, etc. The audience doesn't just come to sit in a room and watch a speaker. They come there to 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 engage with the stuff and 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 do all this these things. So we had the speakers for it. We had the audience for it. Um, we we wanted to make something that was even though it was online that was engaging. Um, and we didn't want to have a traditional online conference that is just talks. So then the little, you know, the acceptation thing happening was basically deciding what if we just don't do any talks at all? So it's a conference with no presentations, um, nothing at all. And we only have hands-on labs online in, in Zoom and in breakout sessions and with, uh, with Miro. And we spend a lot of time sort of doing test sessions and trying things out and seeing what worked and, um, you know, coaching the speakers and working with them if they had never done something like that. And then we had a conference, which, you know, was a bit smaller, but which was only hands-on labs. Um, people were, you know, engaged in groups all the time, working together, etc. Some people told me it was uh, the online. So people were getting tired of online conferences already by the time that happened, but some people told me it was the online conference I didn't know I needed, uh, which was to me the the best compliment. Um, that's just yeah, so fascinating that, that uh, you, we, we can't be together anymore. So let's go completely hands on. Yeah, <laughs> that, was the, that was the idea. That's just brilliant. Uh, and uh, the last thing I, I wanted to talk to you about was um, just just sort of briefly. But um, when did you when did you get into writing? Were you always a, a writer and a blogger, and uh, and or or was that something that you came to later? Um, as a child, I was always like wanting to become a writer, and I had like stories, and I tried to write books. And uh, at some point, I uh, I had a friend who also was sort of uh, into it, and we uh, tried to write. Oh, I was maybe I don't know twelve, and uh, we would. He he lived uh, like far from me, but we um, uh, in in holidays when we were together, we would write together, and then we started actually uh, snail mailing a floppy disk back and forth. Oh with no the way. <laughs> and then each would write like a chapter or something and uh and yeah we, we wrote like i don't know it's like a 300 400 pages novel which probably wasn't very good in fact at some point we realized it wasn't very good because we had to learn to write while we did it. and then we um we started over but then that never took off anymore so uh and i don't have it anymore so i don't know uh if if it was any good at all um but then yeah I, i've always enjoyed writing um well i, I mostly enjoy having written uh <laughs> and writing is That's well said <laughs> uh, same as a musician I, I i was a very slow writer it was very like hard and uh, but now i um so i've been blogging uh yeah since 2011 something like that uh but not very very frequently and there's years where there's where i wrote nothing at all um but then i started writing with uh, with rebecca and um yeah i'm learning to write all over again she's uh she has written like she has written uh, books in the 90s and the 2000s and she's written papers and everything and she coaches and mentors people to write uh so she was like the best 
mentor I could have. Um, and, and the fact that we care about the sort of same topics, et cetera. It started that we, we, you know, we started talking at the conference and, uh, sort of became, became friends. And then we started writing together and I'm learning to write. I'm learning to like read it again and like be very critical. Like I'm, I'm learning to write faster because I used to sort of edit while I was writing and overthinking it and like, yeah, but if I say this first, I need to explain this other thing and I would get stuck. Um, and with her, it just sort of, yeah, just dump it, just write it like, like it's happening. She's pushing me to do that. And then when we, when we start editing, it's really like, uh, digging into it, Like, does this really express what we mean to say? What do we actually mean to say here? Uh, that sort of thing. And then we started because for the, you know, engaging critically with models, we, we did a bunch of research and we started reading some books. And then I was basically, she was teaching me to read again as well. Like, okay, here in the book, it says this thing, but where, where does it get that? Well, it's referring to that elsewhere, but then, you know, I start figuring out how it all works. And then you, sometimes you discover new insights. Sometimes you discover that something is actually written very sloppily, right? They, they mention something and then they say something that actually contradicts that 10 pages later and um so yeah it's been it's been a fascinating process i uh, i can re recommend anybody who struggles with writing to find a, a mentor like that yeah. you know that's that's fantastic and and that, that idea of um i mostly like having written i think it, <laughs> it captures the experience for a lot of people particularly those of us who i think i mean maybe i'm similar to you where like it's kind of like as i'm writing i'm like oh wait a minute what about these million different connections and just like getting getting something down on the page like and just finishing a draft can actually be the hardest thing just know you can't say everything all at once um yeah. uh and you'll well, most of the blogs i i published are stuff where i had sort of enough time and i i wrote the whole thing and published it right away within you know two or three hours because if i don't i start overthinking it again and i never finish it and i yeah <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about um <laughs> Uh, and actually, it sort of leads me to the sort of um, the last question that I always ask on the podcast, if the guest has published a book or books on LeanPub is if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or one thing that when you were interacting with LeanPub, had you shaking your fist at the screen and going, damn you, LeanPub, that we could fix for you? Is there anything you can think of? Well, that if it's magical, then, you know, do the writing for me. <laughs> <laughs> Write the book. Transfer my thoughts directly to paper. Um, yeah, no, well, here we, we didn't really use, um, lean pops interface much. We just, uh, we, we, we wrote it in, uh, well, we switched platforms a few times, but we ended up with the uh, notion, uh, because we can, you know, collaborate and, and, and do stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, getting that into, into lean pop was, uh, pretty frictionless. I guess there was a few times when. Well, maybe that's the one feature, right? When um, a, a preview fails and uh, you don't know why. That's my, uh, that was the thing that uh, was the most uh, annoying, let's say. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. So for anyone for anyone listening um, uh, who doesn't know, LeanPub has various write, what we call writing modes. Um, the simplest one is the upload writing mode, which was the last one we created, which was like people are like, I don't want to use, I don't want to write your way. I want to write the way I write. And so you can just upload a book to LeanPub and that's like easy, easy as easy as pie. Uh, and then you can use all of our other features. But we do have writing modes where you write in plain text and you and, and, and you write in something called Markua. 
which is our sort of markdown for books. And so, you know, what that means is that you're writing in plain text. So you actually have to like type in the formatting instructions into your manuscript itself, which, you know, in the olden days on typewriters, that was, you know, there was an underlying feature that meant you know, if you handed that off to your publisher, I want this to be in italics. Um, so that was, a, you know, it's, it's not it's not as complicated as it sounds, but sometimes it is as complicated as it sounds. And so you press this button in LeanPub to sort of take my take my plain text manuscript, create a preview of it in, you know, PDF and Mobi, or, or sorry, PDF and EPUB. And um, sometimes that build process fails. And one thing we've just never been good at is saying like exactly what line the manuscript essentially turns into a program, right? Like, you know, what line broke the book generation process? And we've never been as good at that as we should be. And we should have better sort of error messaging and stuff like that. It is something we will get to one day, but thank you very much for sharing that because I think that um, probably most of the authors that I asked this question to forget to forget to complain about that very specific thing. Um, so thank you very much for bringing that up. Uh, well, uh, Matthias, thank you very much uh, for taking time out of, out of your evening to, uh, to talk to me and to talk to uh, our audience about your work and uh, su super fascinating sort of like sort of theory about domain-driven design. Well, thanks. It was a pleasure doing this. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.